Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Tuesday, April 6, 2010, and welcome to the Future of Education. Our guest tonight is Dr. Tony Wagner. Hi, Tony, and thanks for being here. Hi, Steve. My pleasure. So, uh, futureofeducation.com is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. The project I work on for Illuminate is called Learn Central. It's a free social network for educators. We hope that you'll come by. It does have Illuminate baked in and lots of fun things and a calendar of all of these events. Coming up on futureofeducation.com and conversations.net tomorrow, we continue with our Education for Digital World 2.0 series. These are interviews with some of the authors of an upcoming anthology. Hope you'll uh, check that out on futureofeducation.com. Next week, Scott Rosenberg on Say Everything, then Larry Ferlazzo. Uh, Inside Institute and Michael Horn will be presenting on Wichita Public Schools in their new report. Then Tim Magner, Dr. Robert Epstein on Teen 2.0. If you haven't seen this book, it's really worth looking at, even if you just preview it on Amazon. Uh, a, a huge, fascinating book on adolescence. Randy Orwin on Intelligent Implementation of Open Source Software. Jackie Gerstein on User-Generated Education. Just scheduled, Anya Kamenetz, I hope I'm saying that right, on her new book, DIYU, Do-It-Yourself University. Uh, lots more fun ahead, as you can see. So hopefully you'll join us in the future. If you've missed a session, please do feel free to go to either site to look for the recordings. Um, and they are up there. Uh, last week, Carl Blythe on their amazing language program at Texas. Uh, I think it's University of Texas. Just a terrific program there. And then Sir Ken Robinson, Bill Kist, in uh, the interview on his book, Socially Network Classroom, which I also loved, and lots more. Hope that you'll look those up and, and you find them helpful to you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, we do want you to know this is a participative, envi participative environment. There are 94 of you, which means you can't all participate at once. But if you have a question, please feel free to put it in the chat. We'll try and track them and make sure that they're visible to Dr. Wagner. Uh, we'll also go to Q&A. And when we're ready to do that, you can use the uh, hand with the green up arrow, the icon with the hand and the green up arrow. It's at the bottom of your participant window to raise your hand to take the mic. If you think that you might want to take the mic later, please do go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard. You'll notice that uh, with the, that larger hand icon or some smaller ones, you can also give a smiley face or a clapping hand. Uh, I'm going to clap right now for Dr. Wagner with appreciation for his being here. I am going to let you participate in it right now in modifying the whiteboard. Look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. And I know we have some international visitors today because I saw your shout out earlier. And you're welcome to shout out again. Fascinating. We are, of course, North America heavy tonight. But for those of you, it uh, looks like maybe Egypt, Australia. Um, you in Europe will have to tell us where exactly you are. But thanks for being here. And if you're listening to this on the recording, we're glad you've done that as well. Oh, and look, someone's actually written text on the whiteboard. A pro, an Illuminate pro from Montana. Thank you, Montana. And for those of you who stayed up late in the UK, because uh, I know somebody did and was keeping themselves awake. Thanks for staying awake. Okay, so Tony, I uh, I told you an email today. I stayed up till two in the morning reading uh, a good portion of uh, Making the Grade, your earlier book, and I could not put it down. Would you tell us just a little bit about your background and kind of what's brought you to Global Achievement Gap? Sure. Um, first of all, there's a recall notice on that book, Steve. <laughs> I don't know whether you got the notice. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I um, started out uh, as a uh, really unhappy high school student and then read some books when I was about 18 or 19. Um, I read uh, Summer Hill. I read uh, Growing Up Absurd by Paul Goodman and suddenly realized that schools didn't have to be boring and stupid. And so I decided to become an educator and try to find a better way. And so my first five years, I spent uh, teaching in an alternative public high school for at-risk kids outside of Washington, D.C. Then I taught in uh, a private school in the Washington, D.C. area where the, actually uh, Hillary uh, Clinton's daughter and, 
and where the, the Obama kids go. Several friends. And then became a head of a school, then started a nonprofit called Educators for Social Responsibility, which is still going. Then went to work for an operating foundation in New York City called Public Agenda Foundation, where I had a chance to work very closely with Dan Yankelovich. Uh, but decided I'd wandered too far afield from my first passion, which was reinventing public education in high schools in particular, so I went back for my doctorate. Done a number of things since then. For the last decade, I have been the founder and co-director of the Change Leadership Group at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So it felt to me as though making the grade uh, really sort of deeply explored some topics that didn't get as much exploration in the global achievement gap. Is the global achievement gap intended to be kind of your personal um, uh, way of initiating conversation um, at a slightly uh, higher level, or have, did you change your mind about some things? I don't know that I fundamentally changed my mind, but I did um, read uh, the World is Flat by Thomas Friedman four and a half years ago, and, and suddenly realized uh, what an incredible changing world we're all um, having to deal with as educators. Um, I really was became concerned with um, what skills all young people will need to get and keep a good job, and whether or not they were the same skills they would need for co college or continuous learning in any form, and active and informed citizenship. So I, I also wanted to reach a broader audience. Uh, I really felt that, and continue to believe, that educators alone cannot transform education. That we're going to have to engage uh, specifically business leaders uh, in a new kind of partnership if we're going to significantly transform education. Uh, folks need to remember, I think, that the, the education reform efforts that we have now are really the result of Lou Gerstner from IBM, David Kearns from Xerox, and others calling on a national education summit in the late 90s, to which they invited all kinds of policymakers, all the governors went, lots of CEOs went, few if any educators were invited, as I understand, for the first summit. But they really catch this idea of accountability and the standards movement in education. So my view is that we now need accountability 2.0, and it's going to take a different kind of an alliance with educators who understand what is good instruction, and business leaders and community leaders who understand what skills young people are going to need in a changing world to work together in a new way. So that's why I wrote this book. I wanted to engage a larger audience in a broader conversation about what it means to be an educated adult in the 21st century, and how do we in motivate and engage this generation, which is growing up in very different ways. So it sounds like part of that was that you saw this connection between uh, the skills necessary, the new skills necessary for success in business, and their, the correlation between those, those skills as life skills. And so all of a sudden, you are, you, you are bringing business back into this discussion of education. Now, does that make people nervous? Yeah, absolutely it does, Steve. It's a great question because, you know, 25 or so years ago, um, the, the prevailing belief was that business folks wanted a bunch of good doobies, um, people who followed orders and, you know, showed up to work on time and not much more. Um, as kind of, quote, skills for the workplace. And a lot of educators then and now continue to say, uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, my job is not to prepare people for the workforce. But what I really came to understand, and I'm trying to help others understand, is that the skills you need to get and keep a good job, to have a career in the 21st century, are the same skills you need to be an active and informed learner and the same skills you need to be an active, informed, collaborating contributor to a 21st century democracy. In other words, they're not in opposition, which is still the conventional thinking for a lot of folks. You know, educators and business leaders are oil and water. They are two different cultures. They don't frequently talk to one another. In fact, I find often don't like or respect one another very much. And I have now seen 
differently how much their their interests really have 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 come have intersected. It occurred to me as as you made that argument in the book that there that in addition to the kind of um, what you call the uh, bringing of the workplace valuations or the sky is falling claims, you know, for 20 years or 25 years, hearing the business people say that schools need to improve. That there's also been a disconnect that Dan Paint kind of brings out with regard to measuring and motivation, and maybe even another disconnect because of the vendor relationship to schools. Do either of those occur to you as also being sort of barriers to this argument? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, every all business leaders live for accountability and metrics. But it was the business leaders who said to me, having the wrong metric is worse than having none at all. And so this is part of the challenge that we educators need to help business leaders understand. You get what you measure. And if you, if you got the wrong yardstick, it's useless, which is where we are, I believe, in accountability 1.0. We have the wrong yardstick. We're measuring the wrong things. And so what gets tested is what gets taught. So that's one of the problems. And then the other thing you mentioned, which is you know, the fact that some folks like Cisco Systems or Apple or others are trying to, to sell to, to education audiences complicates the conversation, but not hugely. You know, most of the folks I interviewed had absolutely no education business whatsoever. Um, I frankly think it's a bit of a red herring some folks who are very conservative educationally have raised um, trying to suggest that you know, the, the 21st century skills movement is really a vendor movement to sell more hardware and software to schools. I see really no evidence whatsoever for that. So I saw an interesting convergence of ideas because I think a lot of what you talk about in the book reminds me of the Deming PQM um, kind of McGregor very thoughtful understanding of business motivation and teamwork, and Peter Senge even. And and maybe maybe for me part of what we're seeing is how those have become really important ways of thinking about business in the new global economy. And in fact, what I think you're saying is they're also very needed uh, ways of thinking about education. You know, there's no question. I mean, they, on the one hand, business has been a quarter of a century ahead of us in understanding the importance of collaboration and teamwork. N Almost no work gets done in business today without teams working together to identify and solve problems. And they have the best businesses have really forced down um, the kind of chain of command uh, the importance of innovation, the importance of initiative. Uh, to give an example, um, <laughs> the, the uh, Martin Dempsey, um, four-star general in charge of all training for the United States Army. Uh, is now deeply concerned that he really teach every young person who comes into the Army, basic training, officer training, whatever, to um, not just work in a team, but have a team that can initiate, that can solve problems together without being told by an officer what to do. And this is true, I think, in, in all domains. Whereas education is still highly isolated as a profession, arguably really one of the most isolated professions in the modern work world, and also highly compliance-driven. Um, you know, we, we, it's a kind of go-along-to-get-along kind of culture in education, and very risk-averse. So all of these things, from my point of view, inhibit innovation. And innovation is the coin of realm in the 21st century in any sector. I just came back from a Kennedy School of Government um, uh, session on innovation in uh, governance and uh, with people from New York and New Orleans and so on talking about the importance of governments actually encouraging innovation. So we see across the spectrum, the importance of collaboration, the importance of initiative, the importance of teamwork, the importance of innovation everywhere except in education, where we don't have any of those things. So if you're trying to follow the chat and having trouble, go up to tool or go up to view layouts and switch to wide layout. I should have mentioned that earlier, but if those of you who are in the room, if you're having trouble following this fast chat, view layouts and then wide wide layout.
So Tony, there's sort of to me this kind of sad parallel in your work between how the teachers are treated and how the students are treated. And I think at one point you even used the word that it's an obedience culture. Uh, are they sort of in the same boat? Oh boy, Steve, you, you have so identified what I now see and want to write about for my next book as a key challenge. That if we want kids to learn how to think critically, work collaboratively, solve problems, take initiative, be a, all of those things that I describe as what I call the seven survival skills, then adults have to be practicing those skills every single day. So there, I increasingly understand that there is a direct relationship between what happens in the classroom and what or what doesn't happen in faculty meetings. And so um, we can't expect kids to learn these skills if we adults aren't actively practicing them. A question I get asked almost every single time I give a talk it comes from a teacher who says, how can I teach these skills if I don't have them or I'm not developing them? Or, and, and how do I do that? So I think you've absolutely identified a critical issue here. Yeah, you, you mentioned in the book that teachers are, are being told to try things and they have no real understanding as to why. We have what I call in education random acts of excellence. We have wonderful teachers doing extraordinary things, lots of places, almost completely disconnected from one another. And on the other hand, we have leaders who come in who feel determined and, and bound to try something new or different, um, coming in with some new solution, new, new idea, new strategy. And those two have no relationship to one another. So an, a leader will come in and say, we need to do small learning communities. You know, I consulted at the Gates Foundation for eight years. Small learning communities was their thing. And teachers kind of scratch their heads and say, small learning communities? Why? Well, what's the problem? But they go along because they have to. There's no conversation about what's the problem we're trying to solve? What strategy are we using? Why do we choose the strategy? How will we know if it's working? It's just simply not a part of our thinking in education, which I find deeply disturbing. So in Making the Grade, you go into some real detail about the, the kind of meetings that you would hold in order to bring um, the constituents together who have an interest in, in the local schools. I get the feeling that part of your message is this actually works. I know it may, it, you may not think it's going to work or it may not produce the quality that you want, but trust me, when you do this, people will actually produce really good output. Did I get that right? We know enough from the few highly innovative projects in education around the country and from the wonderful random acts of excellence of individual teachers. We do begin to see a pattern. And it, it's interesting because it's not the same. I mean, you, I, you go to High Tech High, which I profile in the Global Achievement Gap, which is in San Diego, and you go to um, the Met in Providence, Rhode Island, and initially they look very, very different. But, in, but they have a number of things in common, which I try to identify in the book, that I think are extremely important to understand. The importance of using content as a means to an end. That the, the goal here is developing core competencies. That performance standards matter much more than content standards. That we have to actively engage the learner in questions and issues that are of intrinsic interest to the learner. Uh, things like that. That we have to that create mechanisms for teachers to work collaboratively and have shared responsibility for a group of students over time. So you look at some pretty diverse and different kinds of uh, learning environments, and, and I think you can begin to identify some common threads that, that are a foundation for us to build on. So are there any schools that get held up as examples that you purposely don't include because you actually feel like they're, they're not helping? To be honest, uh, I have great respect for the work that KIPP and similar schools are doing with um, 
economically disadvantaged kids. But I also have questions. Um, KIPP is pretty regimented. KIPP teaches, you know, a certain way, and and and, may, and it's primarily middle school focused. Is at least that's where what its origins are. But I would worry that as, as as successful as they have been at a middle school level, their metric for measuring success is still test scores. What happens to those kids when they get into high school? Are they really um, going to finish high school? Probably, because they're, I think they're more motivated now that they've had a KIPP kind of an experience. But the real question is, are they graduating career, college, and citizenship ready? Are they going to go to college, and are they going to succeed in college? In other words, what I want to know is less about test scores and more about attainment. So are they graduating? Are they going to college or some kind of post-secondary? Because that's a precondition for the 21st century. And are they succeeding? And I worry that a KIPP kind of environment, which is much more regimented than some schools, may not enable kids to learn the kind of critical thinking, kind of initiative, um, kinds of skills that they're going to need to succeed in high school and beyond. So I didn't discuss KIPP because I have questions. And there are other models like that I could raise questions about. So you are specifically interested in high school. Do you want to talk about that? I Sure. Um, well, I think it's a K-20 problem. <laughs> you know, our colleges are not a lot better. Um, our elementary schools need a lot of help. But here's the, here's the difference, and I try to discuss this in the last part of the Global Achievement Gap. At least for elementary school, we're clear about, or at least somewhat clear about, what's the purpose of elementary school. Kids need to leave elementary school learning, knowing how to read and write and compute, you know, numeracy, literacy and numeracy. We know that's that's the purpose of elementary school. Now, the problem is we're defining literacy at very, very low levels. And we're not engaging kids actively in their own learning. I get all of that. So that's still a problem. But at the secondary level, middle and high, we're not even clear about the goals, Steve. Is it to pass tests? Is it to get every kid into college? What does that mean? You know, suddenly in the last six months, it seems, everybody recognizes that high school ought to be about college and career readiness. Little problem. What does that mean? Does that mean taking a bunch of courses? Does that mean passing advanced math? What does it mean? Well, so we're not even clear about the purposes of secondary school in America in the 21st century. It, it also seems that you make the point, maybe repeatedly, that we don't even agree on what good teaching looks like. Oh, Steve. <laughs> you know, I, I describe in the book, I do this exercise, and I do it repeatedly in workshops. and. Uh, people listening to this can try it on their own. Well, I'll show a video um, which is live streamed from our uh, Change Leadership Group website, and there are links from myschoolchange.org website if people want to find it. I'll show a video of a 10th grade English class to a group of very experienced educators. And Steve, I've done this from teams within one district. I've done this with teams from school districts all over the country who've come to Harvard 15, 20 times. I've done this with just a group of superintendents. I've done it with program officers from the Gates Foundation. I've, I've repeatedly found that when I ask people a simple practice, I say, grade the lesson. Not the teacher, the lesson. Because I really believe that the focus of our ongoing conversations about improvement needs to be lessons, not people. At any rate, the grade range the narrowest grade range I've ever gotten, Steve, is A to D. And I more frequently get A to F. And my worst day was A plus to F minus. And, and we're not talking about a couple of outliers at either end. Fundamentally, we divide into thirds where about a third give it a very high grade, about a third maybe more give it a kind of medium grade, and then a third give it a very low grade. And then I ask people, why do you think that is? What's your hypothesis? And people say, well, we have different experiences. We value different things. So then I lead a conversation. And I ask three people who gave it a B plus or above, 
to explain their reasons, and three people who gave it say a C minus or below to explain theirs. They used the same words, Steve. Oh, a lot of rigor. Oh, there was no rigor. Oh, you know, very kind of relevant, engaging lesson for kids. No, no, no engagement. Relationship with kids was great. Relationships was terrible. We're using the same words, Steve, but meaning totally different things. And it goes right back to what I said earlier about how profoundly isolated the education profession is. Folks don't go into classrooms talking together about what is an effective lesson or unit of study um, and how do we make lessons better. We don't look at or talk about instruction together collaboratively. It's not a subject for collaborative inquiry. So it's no wonder we don't agree on what good teaching is because we never look at it or talk about it together. And then I simply ask the question, how can we improve instruction if we can't agree on what good instruction or good lessons are. So we'll get to the piece I, uh, toward the end where you actually talk about the elements of what you think the three schools in the book share that are good. But I was intrigued by the fact that there was a disconnect between how people saw that video. But when you do your learning walks, it sounded like it's almost always pretty much agreement that things aren't working. Well, it takes time. Um, you know, learning walks are another one of these fads, these reform du jours, these silver bullets. Um, one of my colleagues at Harvard calls them instructional rounds and so on. That's fine. But a couple of preconditions here. First of all, you, before you do the learning walk, you've got to spend some significant portion of time agreeing on a few things that are most important to be looking for. You can't just use a checklist, which is what people frequently do. You've got to agree. All right. When, for example, I'll get a table, I'll get folks around the table and say, everybody says, okay, we want to look for evidence of critical thinking. I'll say, well, what would be the indicators of that? What kinds of teacher work and student work would suggest to you critical thinking was going on? Well, people haven't thought about that. It's a checklist item, unless and until you talk about what behaviors, what evidence would determine whether or not that was going on in the classroom. The more you talk about that, the more you realize it's got very little to do with what's happening at the front of the room and everything to do with what's happening on student desks, evidence in students' oral and written work. Well, but that's not a leap that we often take. So then um, we do this learning walk, and I believe that you have to do it collaboratively, and then you have to spend as much time debriefing the learning walk as you've actually spent doing it. And my experience has been when I take people on learning walks using this kind of pattern and methodology where they've agreed on what they're looking for, they've agreed on what would be indicators or evidence, and when they sit down and debrief each individual classroom one by one, they have a very different takeaway than if they'd simply used a checklist and gone by themselves. And the takeaway almost invariably is, wow, I had no idea how little was going on in classrooms. It's, and I don't think this is unique to teaching, but is part of this story that uh, teaching and learning are hard that and that systems end up being shortcuts, so they're often created and used just to save the work? You know, I think about <laughs> the analogy I use is that teaching is both a performing art and a sport. But you look at how people get better in the performing arts. And the performing arts are hard. You've got to get up on the stage and you've got to deliver, right? Um, same with sports. You've got to get on the athletic field and you've got to go do it. And people are watching and, you know, it hurts when you, you feel like you've failed, the team or yourself. But here's the difference. In the performing arts or in a sport, you have a coach or a director of a play or a band leader or whatever. But you have somebody who has some sense of what a good performance looks like in the athletic field or the stage. You use videotapes routinely to look at your practices, in quotes, and to look at your performances and to assess them. We don't do those things. We're both a performing art and a sport, but we haven't learned lesson one from those two domains about how to improve our performances or our plays on the field, as it were. 
So in um, making the grade, I think that you have a, a fair amount of detail about the, the ways in which the profession could be changed. And there's a chapter, I think, too, in Global Achievement Gap. Uh, but I also get the feeling that you kind of want to start the discussion more than actually come to the conclusions. Is that fair? Is that kind of a little bit of a shift in the two books? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I, what I have come to understand and value is the importance of asking the right question or questions and framing the problem. So um, I guess I thought I knew more 10 years ago than I know now, maybe. Uh, but I do understand, um, you know, the, the most important takeaway from all of my interviews with senior business community military leaders is that the skill of asking really good questions matters more than anything else in their world. And the next one after that is the, the ability to engage others in a meaningful conversation. So the two go together. Asking good questions, engaging others around the right questions. Uh, you know, even coming away from this uh, session tonight at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government where these political leaders said, you know, the real challenge is getting people to to focus on the right problem. One person gave an example. She'd been working with homelessness, and she said she had a state agency, city agency, I guess, focused entirely on getting people into shelters, when really the problem was homelessness. And shelters were a symptom or a Band-Aid you know, to deal with the symptom of homelessness, but they weren't in any way focused on how to reduce homelessness. So for me, that it comes back to we're not asking the right questions in education in the 21st century, and we're certainly not asking students how to ask really good questions because we're way too focused on answers, not questions. So I'm not going to, I hope I don't oversimplify the books, but I actually see that progression. So it seems like making the grade had a lot of answers. The global achievement gap is more about presenting the problems. And then what I hear you doing is saying, OK, now we need to be having the conversations. This is, these are the difficulties. This is now our work to do. We've got to get together and talk. Is that an oversimplification, or is it kind of a magical progression? No, not at all, Steve. I, I, I think that's exactly right. The, what I would only add, you know, I've just uh, released the paperback version of the Global Achievement Gap, but I've written a new afterward for it. And, and I do some case studies of what some districts have done since the publication of the book. So there, there is some learning that we need to ask the right questions. We need, I would simply add that we need methodologies for engaging the community in the right questions, a different kind of strategic planning process. So I point to the Virginia Beach City Public Schools having engaged the entire community in a conversation about how the world has changed and what our kids need to know in this changing world. And they got 1,000 people in their civic center on an evening to look at the data and consider what the priorities need to be. So it's asking the right questions at scale, maybe, uh, and then uh, the only other thing I would add is that we need to incent R&D, research and development. That how, you know, here again is a lesson from the business world. Uh, Microsoft spends, what, 17% on research and development, Cisco systems, 13%. I don't even know what Google's is, but what I do know they give every single employee the equivalent of a day a week to work on his or her projects of their own choosing, which is almost like 20% of the time of, uh, in a kind of personal R&D, personal and collaborative, where is the R&D budget for education? Where are, and without that, how can we expect, how can anyone expect us to improve our product with, or to create innovations without an R&D capability. So I argue in the, in the new afterward to the book that we really need to, at a district level, create laboratory schools or with smaller districts or rural areas to, to create together uh, a kind of regional uh, laboratory school that is deliberately and intentionally a laboratory for innovation for teaching and assessing 21st century uh, skills. So uh, it's, for me, it's taking the question to the next step. If 
if we ask what all young people need to know and be able to do in the 21st century, then we ask how do we engage adults in our communities and around that conversation. And the next question I would say is how do we engage um, adults in schools around meaningful R&D and innovation and, and learn more intentionally about what works and what doesn't. So I'm definitely going to buy the paperback version now because I don't have that one. If somebody's, <laughs> if somebody's looking for those models of how communities got engaged and went through that process, it sounds like there's some in that material. D does any of your other work have kind of detail on that? Well, I did in Making the Grade describe a, a similar engagement process um, in a, with a community in Connecticut. But the Virginia Beach story has, has real follow through because you know, they, they were far more kind of rigorous in gathering the data. They did focus groups with recent graduates at, and at my suggestion videotaped those focus groups and brought that back to the, the larger community. They did interviews with employers and college teachers about the skills that were required, videotaped those and brought those back. They gave an assessment that I think is really the only decent assessment that is readily available. Uh, of the skills that matter most called the College and Work Readiness Assessment. It, it's an online test of critical thinking, problem solving, analytic reasoning, and writing, which gives you uh, a report that compares your student group. And you, you can just give it to a demographic sample. It's not a test for individual kids. But it compares, say, your 12th graders, which Virginia Beach used, to college freshmen taking the same test. And so Virginia Beach found, for example, that despite its high test scores and making AYP every single year, the top half of its senior class taking this new assessment was in the bottom quartile of college freshmen taking the same test, which means that, of course, these kids are not going to graduate college ready. So they gathered all of this data. and. They brought a thousand people into a civic center and said, "All right, here, given the data, and they're in tables of eight, um, what should our highest priorities be?" And overwhelmingly, they had clickers so people could vote for their their priorities, and they had lists of priorities and so on. Overwhelmingly, they voted that uh, critical thinking and problem solving is the number one skill, and independent learning is number two. And it, this came across educators, parents, community members, military leaders who were there, everybody. Overwhelming priority. Then the district set about trying to define what is critical thinking? What does it look like? They started doing lots of learning walks, developed protocols. And, and now we're trying to develop assessments um, at eighth grade, fifth grade to match the college and work readiness assessment. So they pushed this hard. Uh, from a broad-scale public engagement effort to a very finely honed school improvement strategy. Steve, they developed a strategic plan based on this community process that is the front and back of one page. It's amazing. It's right on their website, and I have the links to it in the, last, um, in the afterward to the new book. I don't know anybody who's done that. Create a strategic plan that is that visible, that clear, that focused, and, and that sort of providing that momentum. It's wonderful. That sounds uh, really terrific, and I can't wait to, to read about it. I think we're often told that if we look at elite schools, that we will see the difference between schools that really weren't designed to teach all students to think and those that are really designed to teach students to think. Uh, is that a reasonable claim for people to make, and, and I'm thinking of uh, certainly of Sir Ken Robinson and in the, in the whole question of sort of the arts and the involvement of arts in schools. Do you typically see elite schools doing a better job? It's mixed. Um, I see elite schools not having to focus on passing a very kind of low-level test, which is too many of too many public schools have that, that problem right now. You know, elite schools are focused on having more kids take and pass APs, advanced placement course tests, versus uh, basic reading and math tests. But that becomes another problem because advanced placement tests are also way too content driven. I do not think they are the gold standard for rigor in the 21st century. So. 
in a sense, they're as test-driven as public schools, though the tests are more challenging for students. But when you actually go to the level of, of classroom instruction, I don't see significantly better teaching going on in these elite private schools. And I taught in one, and I, I am in them from time to time. I was in one last week. I was in, in Tucson last week. I, I visited a private school, spent a day there, I did a learning walk at the head of the school, and I was also in the Tucson Independent School District doing work there as well. And the problems are more similar than not. That in both places, teachers are too focused on content and don't understand that in the 21st century, it's not what you know. It's what you can do with what you know. Because in the 21st century, what you know can be looked up on the internet. And it's changing and changing rapidly. Now, I, I want to be clear, Steve, because frequently people create these two artificial distinctions between 21st century skills versus content. I believe in content. I believe there is such a thing as cultural literacy. Now, E.D. Hirsch and I at least sort of agree that kids need to sort of understand the map of the world and chronology of history and so on. But uh, do they need to know who the generals were who fought in the Civil War? Do they need to know when and where the Battle of Appomattox was fought? I think that's far less important than asking what I would call, and the Coalition of Essential Schools would call, the essential question of why was the Civil War fought? What were the causes? And in what way is that war still being fought? So what I would assess students are on in a, in a unit of study around the Civil War is not did they, measure, you know, did they memorize the generals and, and the dates for the battles, but how would they discuss the causes of the Civil War and the ways in which they think the Civil War is still being played out today? Or I might even ask up, you know, one of these hypothetical questions. What would happen? If we had let the South secede, how would current events play out differently today? So in other words, it's less about content in the 21st century. It's more about how you think about content, how you access and analyze content. And I don't see classrooms either in public or private schools really developing these 21st century skills. If I could go on for one more sentence or a paragraph. Schools, both public and private, are, too, are entirely focused on what I call timeless learning, passing along the academic content that has stood the test of time. Now, that continues to be important. You know, I want young people to understand who the Greeks were and the, you know, the Athenians versus the Spartans. And, you know, there are things like that that I think are important, although that's an ongoing conversation. What are they? Uh, Athenians versus Spartans, or Sunnis versus Shiites, both, neither, either, you know. Um, but in the 21st century, there is this timeless learning, which is still important, and the, almost the sole focus of schools and testing. But really, what matters most in this larger world is what the skill of what I call just-in-time learning. And so we need to really understand how do we do both timeless learning and teach the skills of just-in-time learning. So to give a very specific example, Steve, battlefield manuals have always been written by the Army. They're the Army's way of trying to capture knowledge about how you conduct battle. They used to be written by experts who would come back from the front and go to war colleges or West Point and write this stuff. Today, the Army writes battlefield manuals as wikis, where they expect every soldier on the front who has new, what I call just-in-time learning, to contribute. And here's another example. I talked to a liver specialist who's a physician. And he says, you know, not only can I look up new information on the internet, if I don't, I'm endangering my patient. Because what I learned in medical school, or what I thought I knew five years ago, is probably no longer true, or not the best treatment. And so I have to be able to engage in what I, Tony Wagner, call just-in-time learning to serve my patients' needs today in the 21st century. Now, it seems to me the question we need to ask is, how do we put these two together, timeless learning and just-in-time learning? What's the ratio? What's the methodology? What's the pedagogy? 
and so on. And those are the right questions for around which I believe we need to be doing what I call educational R&D. Yeah, I really liked how you, you stated in the book, you said, uh, there's no way to teach the competencies of critical thinking, problem solving, effective communication, and accessing and analyzing information, and so on, without also teaching academic content. And, and I heard words there that I knew I could pass on. There's no question about that. I mean, you, you can't, I used to teach high school English. You, you, you can't teach kids to think critically about nothing. And I want them to be introduced to, to good literature and good essays and so on. So of course critical thinking is going to be around content. It's impossible to imagine it otherwise. And when I ask kids to write, I don't simply want them to write their uninformed opinions about stuff. I want them to write analytic essays or opinion pieces about things that they really studied or analyzed. And beyond that, I do think that, you know, this, you know, some basic core knowledge that kids need to navigate the world. So content matters. But con what, what educators need to understand is that content is no longer king. That it's competencies that matter as much or more than content. So we're going to move to Q&A. We've got about 12 minutes left. I'll ask one or two more questions as you're preparing your questions. But feel free to raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window. If you would like to ask a question using the microphone, please do make sure that your microphone is configured by going to Tools, Audio, and Run the Audio Setup Wizard. And Rocket Rob, you'll be the first one. So thanks for raising your hand. Um, Tony, would you, while people are preparing their questions, would you give a quick overview of the lessons from the exemplary schools? Um, and if, and if I need to prompt you, I'm glad to, but, uh, but is that something you feel comfortable just talking about quickly? Um, sure. Um, these schools are focused on learning, not teaching. Um, that is to say, they hold themselves accountable for um, what students can do, not on tests, but in terms of 100% of the kids graduating, 100% is graduating, college career and citizenship ready, and going on to college. Uh, these schools organize teachers into teams. Uh, the teams of teachers have shared responsibility for a group of students over time. Um, and that the teamwork become, becomes a kind of what I call face-to-face -face accountability. Um, these schools focus on students doing real work for real audiences over and over again. Exhibitions of mastery, performance assessments become both the means of assessment and the way to motivate young people uh, to do interesting and worthwhile work. Those are just a few. I could probably say more, but that, that would, might be a good start. That's a terrific start. So Rocket Rob, I've given you the microphone to turn your mic on. You got out of the audio box. There you go. Uh, yeah, my question, Tony, was. Steve, I just lost yeah. that. I just heard my question, Tony. Was. Rocket Rob, we heard the start of that, and then it dropped off. Do you want to try again? So Rocket Rob, we've lost your audio, and I'm not going to. Oh, there you go. Go ahead. Okay, Rocket Rob, go back up to Tools Audio Run. Not getting it. Okay. Uh, we're not hearing you. I'm going to give Angela the mic. Rocket Rob, go back up and test your audio again at that uh, Tools Audio. I'm sorry about that, but we'll have to have you try again. Angela, go ahead. Okay, can you hear me, Steve? Sure can. All right. Hi, Tony. Uh, great stuff tonight. Um, I just wanted you to make the link between the survival skills that you're speaking about, college ready and workforce ready, um, in terms of web ready, how do you see the link um, or make the case for letting um, the environment of the web and the dynamics of um, the web align with what you're speaking about in terms of um, another gap? Great question. You know, I, honestly, I think digital literacy is one of these huge new areas that we've really have not begun to understand and explore. Digital literacy is a precondition for being effective in the workplace today. I mean, I can't tell you how 
much I relied on the web to research this last book compared to my previous books. You know, that's web ready. That's digital literacy. Um, digital literacy is essential in college. These kids are going to have to go out and research a bunch of, bunch of stuff for every course all the time. Digital literacy is essential to be a, a citizen. To, to, all right, how do you understand these debates about health care without being able to sort of look things up and understand the difference between analysis and uninformed opinion? So when kids go and do searches and, you know, they cut and paste the first things they find in Google and they have no idea, you know, how to evaluate an internet search or a website. It's a whole new set of challenges. Similarly, when kids share stuff that may be inappropriate on um, their Facebook page or do sexting, where do they go to learn how to even have a, a conversation about what might be appropriate or, or um, uh, adult in the, or in the 21st century? So from my point of view, there is a vast new area of learning to engage young people in that, that I don't see much evidence people are, are exploring in, in thoughtful ways other than as individuals one-off. Again, it comes back to my view about the need for uh, an intentional R&D effort that districts need to sponsor to create these innovations. Okay, Keith Christensen, I'm giving you the mic, and Rocket Rob, if you want to come back, please let us know. Go ahead, Keith. Keith, we saw your mic on for a second. Be sure to just click. It's like a light switch. Click the mic on. I'll have you put your mic back on. There you go. I am I on? We can hear you. I guess I'm working out here. Can someone confirm? Perfect. Okay, good. So I'm a part of a policy advisement group for uh, digital literacy, and we keep coming up against these same kind of core competencies. Uh, technology is just another tool. It's uh, all of these things you keep on talking about, evaluating information, these are really core skills. One thing I find myself uh, concerned about and, and ran into last year was how to address um, what's appropriate in the classroom. Uh, you, you talked about sexting and Facebook issues and all these other posting uh, issues that kids need some place to deal with, and yet this is extremely difficult to approach in a classroom. I, I'm wondering if there's other I don't know, is my question clear? Am I still on? Well, Hello? what are you finding? Yes, I heard you. What are you finding to approach in the classroom? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm finding that by virtue of my position as, a, as, as basically a guardian of kids, that to be involved in anything that could be inappropriate, yeah. which is coming up all over the place, this could be extremely risky when it's something that can't be so easily monitored by parents. Like it's such a gray area. Does this make any sense? And someone just posted, this is contextual, and that's very true. Well, um, yeah, I think you need a relationship with kids to be able to engage in these hard conversations. Comes back to teams of teachers having shared responsibilities for a group of kids over time. I think it's very hard to come in as a kind of outlier you know, or to make a policy. It, it's an ongoing conversation where the teacher has to, in a sense, become a coach and say, you know, about you know, the kinds of things you're thinking about posting or have already posted or may have sent on your phone, um, what's going to happen in five years if you apply for a job and your employer finds this? Have you thought about that? Are you prepared to defend those statements or behaviors or photographs? That's what I mean. And being able to ask it in a way that's not kind of a put down, but respectful. And that requires a relationship over time in life. Tony, doesn't this also relate to the proactive teaching of social media in ways that are valuable? And, and in the context of that, kind of describing the pitfalls? Absolutely. You know, you, you don't necessarily wait until somebody has texted half the school with an inappropriate photograph or, you know, has Facebook entries that are upsetting to people. It's got to be a much more engaging conversation. It has to start in middle school. So it's a part of, you know, digital literacy in the 21st century, both, both how, you know, how to use the Internet in ways that are powerful and engaging and meaningful and interesting, but also how to... How 
how to raise questions with young people about, you know, what might not work or might what might come back to haunt them in ways that they would not want. Yeah, you can't wait. You can't wait for an incident. Rocket Rob, I'm going to give you a try again. Go ahead and click on your microphone button and see if we can hear you this time. Okay, can you hear me now? Coming through loud and clear. Okay, my question was, uh, how do you see uh, the new direction of the national educational uh, curriculum through Arnie Duncan matching your what you've been talking about tonight? You know, I, I worry about a lot of things. Um, I think the idea of trying to sort of have fewer, higher national content standards is a, is a good is worthwhile. And from what I hear, the English uh, language content standards aren't bad. Um, I worry about requiring all students to study advanced math. Why do we need to do that? Most people never use advanced math in their whole lives. Why are we not requiring statistics and probability and, and computation, which are required by virtually all of us to be an informed citizen? Uh, we require, are requiring advanced math because colleges require it, but nobody's asking the question, why? Colleges have been requiring it for some time. I think perhaps because it's a convenient sorting device. So I don't see some of these important questions being asked. That's problem one. Problem two, performance standards in terms of assessment, I believe, matter far more than content standards. You know, are we going to make a content standard requirement? Every student knows what a gerund is, or you know, not to split infinitives or dangle participles. Those are all content standards. They have nothing to do with the performance standard of writing an effective essay. And when you get out in the adult world, nobody cares whether or not you remember what a gerund is. I couldn't remember it every time I taught it. I had to go look it up the night before. But everybody cares, can you write an effective essay or even an effective email? So that's point two, content versus performance standards. Point three, effective teaching. It's the focus of all this uh, race to the top work. Little problem. Um, we're saying that we want people to um, uh, measure effective teaching. We can do it with bad tests. Well, that's stupid. Then we're incenting more teachers to teach to more bad tests. Uh, are we going to do it with individual? teachers working alone, so we're going to give a little more money to a teacher who gets better test scores? Well, that's even more stupid, because what we need desperately is collaboration. And then we're not asking the question, what kinds, you know, <laughs> drives me crazy when we're out of time, but the president praised the school district in Rhode Island for firing all its teachers, not asking the question, where was the principal? Where was the superintendent? Where was the school board? Teachers, in many cases, are only as effective as their leadership they're being given. So I think we're, we're not asking enough of the right questions again. OK, so we are at 6 o'clock uh, Pacific and 9 o'clock Eastern. Tony, I'm going to clap for you. That was just wonderful. And I know your time is valuable. Uh, if you ever want to come back on again, there will be a ready audience. If you had a question for Tony, if you didn't get to ask it, I'm really sorry. But hopefully, you'll continue the conversation at futureofeducation.com and come another night. And, and we'll uh, keep hopefully having guests as engaging as Tony. Uh, and I also hope, Tony, that we've done a good job of actually holding the conversation you're calling for. And in my own way, I'm kind of smiling that maybe we've done that. Steve, you've done a fabulous job as an interviewer. And you've prepared wonderfully for this and asked really great questions. I thoroughly enjoyed this and the questions and comments of your audience. Uh, if folks want to know a little more about the book or anything else related to my work, they can go to schoolchange.org. And they can also download some of my videos and some of my PowerPoints for additional there. Okay, so I've put the link in the chat as others have done. Thank you, Tony. Really appreciate uh, your coming on tonight. Thanks all of you for attending. It is my daughter's birthday tonight, so I will not be able to stay for the post-show chat. So we'll close things down, but we'll do this again. And hopefully, you can join us tomorrow or next week. Thanks, everybody, and good night. Thanks, Tony. Great job, Steve. Thank you. Great job. Bye-bye. Bye, folks.
Okay, so those of you who have been here before, you know the drill. We actually have to clear the room for the recording to process. Thanks so much for being here. This has really been fun. Uh, and uh, I do highly recommend both uh, The Global Achievement Gap and Making the Grade, the two books that I looked at. And obviously, we'll be ordering the new paperback edition of The Global Achievement Gap. Take care and good night.